0: Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
1: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination,
2: and tackle controversy head-on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling. And I'm Doug Stewart. And today we are joined by Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Preston is a biblical scholar and pastor who previously served as vice president at Eternity Bible College and is now president of a new ministry called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, which is dedicated to helping the contemporary church think through the issues and love the people affected by same-sex attraction, and other LGBTQ-related matters. Now, as libertarians, as most of our audience is, this is actually a- another another subject area that's pretty relevant and that we see brought up a lot, especially as Christian libertarians. Uh, those who are more conservative-leaning maybe uh, tend to criticize us on this issue for not wanting to use the state uh, to, to push a particular agenda, but when we consider how the non-aggression of principle a uh, principle applies here, it's it's actually very relevant. I mean, what what libertarians want is to get the state out of the marriage business. I mean, and even if you look into the the Genesis narrative, the Garden of Eden, there was no state marriage licensing. It's it's an ordinance of God, and so we really see how the culture war and trying to use the state to get what. Christians think people should be doing in their personal lives. I mean, we can have beliefs about things and about what they should do and what the ethics are, but using the state has really backfired and Christians are losing the culture wars and that there was a mistake to start them to begin with. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. But more importantly, there's there, there's real people behind these things and that's why Preston's here to talk to us today. He's wrote a fantastic book called People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue, and that's what he's going to be talking to us about. So, Preston, thanks for being here. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey on this issue and how you kind of came to to where you are today on it? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me on, you guys. I'm
2: excited about this uh, this conversation. Uh, yeah, you know, my my journey in the LGBT conversation began several years ago. It began really as a, a research project from a ethical or biblical perspective, I just wanted to kind of figure out on my own what the Bible said about homosexuality in particular. And er- early on in my quote-unquote research, I, I began to just be, befriend and get to know a lot of LGBT people and just, hearing their, and just listen to their stories and got to know them as people. And really, the subtitle for the book was kind of born out of that uh, experience of getting to know the actual people involved in this as you know, very volatile debate, and uh, and yet, as I was studying the issue from a scholarly perspective, I did come to the conclusion that the historic Christian view of marriage and sexuality is correct. That God designed marriage to be a union between two sexually different persons, and that you know sexual expression belongs within that covenant context. So I, I you know, line up with the traditional Christian view, but at the same time, I've seen a lot of. A lot of injustice and damage, and just lack of care and concern uh, done toward uh, LGBT people from the church. And so, yeah, my approach has been kind of messy. It's been in this weird in-between space of, you know, fighting for uh, the humanity and and rights of LGBT people, but also defending a uh, Christian perspective on marriage. And so, I have, uh, I guess, I you know I have an
0: interesting mix of friends and enemies. <laughs> For sure. And actually, I mean, one of the things I, I saw you say recently, and I don't remember where it was, maybe it was on your blog, but you'd mentioned that when you first started studying this, you, you thought that it would maybe be kind of one more uh, point of doctrine where you could sort of buck your, your conservative, quote-unquote, background. Uh, but your, like you said, your in-depth study actually affirmed the the traditional Christian understanding um, but it seems like the the contemporary church, even though we have, I mean, let's just take for, for granted here that that the traditional understanding is correct. The contemporary church has done a really terrible job of ministering practically on this yes. subject, and and you talk a lot about, I mean, in, in in the book and in other venues, um, just ways in which there are people who have been driven away from the church, uh, who have. Suffered tremendous emotional and psychological damage at the hands of the church, um, not not because they were being called to live according to Christian ethics, but because of the way in which it was being right. discussed. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe some specific stories.
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh, uh, we have I have too many stories for the for the hour that we have together. But you know, uh, the the best reference point uh, of what you're talking about is. There's a study done a few years ago by Andrew Marin. It's contained in a book called Us Versus Us. And in that book, Andrew, he performed the largest scientific study done on the religious background of LGBT people. And in that massive survey, he discovered that 83% of LGBT people were raised in a Christian church. More than half have left by the time they're 18. Okay, no surprise there. But where the shock comes is in the reasons why they left. Most people, I would say on the far left and far right, would both say the same thing. Well, they left because of the Christian view of marriage and sexuality. So, conservatives are going to say, uh, well, they just couldn't handle the truth and that's why they left. And, and you know, progressives are going to say, well, your old-fashioned truth is dehumanizing and, you know, damaging and destructive and you need to change your quote-unquote truth. But in a sense, both on the left and right are saying the same thing, that it's the, the theology that's driving them away But less than, gosh, it was like less than 20% who left said they left for theological reasons, and a tiny percentage of that 20% said specifically it was the church's teaching of marriage and sexuality that drove them away. So, what drove them away? It was not what we believe, but how we believe. Our dehumanizing posture, our silence, our, uh, our implicit and explicit shaming of LGBT people, just the awkwardness when somebody comes out and nobody knows what to say. I mean, that's kind of best case scenario. Just silence and isolation is like the best we've done, generally speaking. Worst we've done is dehumanization, shaming, and and contributing to you know suicides and depression. Again, not because of what we believe, but how we have believed, how we have not cared for people wrestling with their sexuality and gender identity. You know, I say all that, and I do think that, that many things are changing. I feel like Christians, evangelical Christians, many of them are eager to cultivate a much better, uh, more compassionate posture toward those wrestling with their faith and sexuality. So, I, I do think that that sort of narrative of the church being horrible to gay people, its definitely still exists, but it is uh, diminishing. But yeah, again, the, the, the main problem in a church is not our theology. I mean, goodness, I, I didn't create my theology, I received it, so hopefully, <laughs> you know, just the way you frame, you know, uh, what theology is doing to people is, is is uh, you know, an, an important distinction, but
0: um, it, it is definitely a relational problem, not a theological problem going on in the church. And along those lines, I mean, you'd, you'd mentioned that things are, seem to be getting better, which is, which is fantastic. I mean, you're much more on the ground on this uh, matter than, than I am, so that's great to hear. Uh, so but in i mean in in the past it seems like you know many many christians uh, have i mean because this issue has been so politicized and yep. i mean that's that's kind of the way we look at it here at libertarian christian institute is i mean we we have supporters of ours that probably land on some some different sides on the theology here but i mean we'd all pretty much agree that we need to get the state out of the marriage business and stop trying to legislate against people that we think are doing something that uh, they they shouldn't be doing, but what happens when uh, same sex relations and and we'll get into the distinction here later between the attraction versus the action? But what happens when that is treated as worse than other sins? Like I mean, you you, you hear these examples of different pastors and and lay Christians and pretty much everybody acro- across the spectrum um, just yeah. bashing is is the the term that's come into use because I think it's kind of accurate. I mean, that's what it's like. just bashing people over this, this thing, um, as opposed to greed, uh, heterosexual lust, um, right. Waging war and, and hatred, like all, all these other things. Right. Um, so can you comment on that? What, what happens when we treat this as somehow worse, uh, than, than other categories of sin?
2: Yeah, I mean that the, the symptom is exactly what we've seen in the church for the last several decades. You, you know, where somebody's struggling with porn, somebody's struggling with alcoholism, somebody struggling or not even struggling with greed, it can, you know, can sit there Sunday after Sunday and, and feel like they belong. But if you struggle with same sex sexuality or your gender identity, then all of a sudden you're treated as some, you know, other category that may or may not even belong in in the church. So um yeah, I think by 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 treating it um, as a as a a much different or significant or worse sin uh, that that's I would say that's one of the several roots that is fed into uh, you know to, to keep the metaphor going has <laughs> fed into this tree of lack of pastoral concern for uh, that type of uh, sin or struggle. Now, I you know I think it comes from you know it comes from just some misunderstandings too. I mean. You know, in Leviticus 18, it says that if, if two men sleep together, the act—not the people, but the act—is an abomination. And so you have that that idea of it being an abomination that kind of is singled out. But the you know the problem with that is many things are considered an abomination in the Old Testament, including eating shrimp and um, collecting sticks on Saturday, and uh, you know other dietary practices and and many other things. And so we, I think it's it's been a misunderstanding of the term abomination. That is fed into that i also think just a very oh the the um you know the interpreting the story of sodom in a particular way where you know the story of sodom is about a bunch of men trying to power rape or gang rape two angels i'm yet to meet um a gay person who struggles with wanting to gang rape angelic beings so i mean that's that's not really their 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 thing (laughs) but but that that story has been mapped on anybody who is gay or uh, uh, struggles of same-sex attraction, they've sort of been understood through the lens of the story of Sodom. And so, even the very term sodomy, you know, has come to refer to throughout, you know, history as, you know, male same-sex intercourse or whatever. Um, and then also the term in Romans 1, uh, against nature uh, or unnatural, I think, has also been misunderstood to mean that this is a worse sin than other sins, but... You know, what's fascinating is there's five passages in the Bible that clearly prohibit same-sex sexual behavior, but in every single one of those passages, there are many, many, many other uh, straight sins, (laughs) for lack of better terms, that are included in the list. So, um, you know, look at Romans 1. I mean, you have, you know, same-sex relations mentioned there, but then read the rest of Romans 1 and verses 29 to 31, you have all kinds of sins that you and I probably committed today, this morning, before this podcast. So, I mean... The the Bible, you know, is an is 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 an equalizer of all sin, and you know that's the whole point of Romans one to three anyway. Is that we are all sort of up the creek, if you will, (laughs) and we all are in desperate need of God's grace. Like the whole point is not to say this person's worse than that person. The the whole point of Romans one to three is the exact opposite. To say we are all in equal need of God's grace. So um, yeah, in short, I think that there there has been some some pretty broad sweeping misunderstandings of uh, how the bible talks about same-sex sexual behavior does it say it's sin yes it says it's sin but it doesn't single it out as some worse sin than other sins
1: one of the things that your book is very good at is not pointing fingers you do a phenomenal job making sure that we keep our own sin in check and you even have this like i don't know if it was like an interlude or the beginning of a chapter about you know the bible being clear on something being a sin and it was about halfway through, and you're probably chuckling because you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And uh, you kinda there's a punchline to it. The and, and I'll let people go read your book unless you wanna unless you wanna share it. But there are many good people who disagree with your final conclusions. And there are many people who look at this issue and, you know, they just they conclude differently. Um, they say that the Bible isn't as clear as as some want it to be. And I think the the fact that most people think, oh, the Bible is clear. We're just going to stand on this. The word abomination is used, just like you said. And that kind of, I think that word sort of, you know, triggers our disgust receptors. And so people just, that that's where I think end, ends up being where, where homosexuals within the church are shamed implicitly because of the reactions uh, traditional Christians have toward it. What parts of this is the bible clear on and are there passages that are that you, you just don't go to 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 have a strong support where do all those passages fit in cuz not all of them are going to be as strong sure. as others
2: That's a great question and I, I feel like I can answer it fairly quickly and easily. I, you know, I think um I think the discussion has it, it begins from the wrong starting point. Usually when people are debating is the bible clear? What does it say? Have we misunderstood what the Bible says about same-sex relations, we usually begin with these five or six prohibition passages, and I just think that that's we're getting off to the wrong foot there. It's like we're entering, you know, the, the story three quarters of the way through, and we when we front load those five passages and then debate those five passages, the 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 overarching question that honestly, if I I mean, <laughs> few people who are engaged in this discussion are actually asking the, the number one question is is marriage A union of two consenting adults like a genderless institution like a gender has no bearing on what marriage is as long as you're a consenting adults um then that's what marriage is or is, is marriage by definition the the one flesh union of two sexually different persons that that that's to me that that's the biggest question everything flows down from there and um i mean if Look, it, it, you, you take any human and put them on a desert island and read the Bible, and, and <laughs> of course they're going to conclude that marriage is between two sexually different persons. Like, it's not, um, I, I, I don't think it's that ambiguous. I mean, look at most of the marriage passages, Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, Mark 10, and and other passages, 1 Corinthians 11 touches on it a little bit. And sex difference seems to be part of what marriage is. In fact, I mean, th- th- and this area, what's fascinating is, you know, um, I'm, a, I'm a biblical guy, so I always, you know, the, the Bible is my primary authority. But I do like to cross-check um, my interpretation with this history of the church. The problem with that is, I mean, Christianity is one of the most diverse religions on the planet. I mean, goodness. If you take all Christians in the world, Syriac Christianity... Uh, Coptic Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, Russian, Protestant, Pentecostal, African, charismatic, liturgic. I mean, it's a huge tent, right? <laughs> What's fascinating is for 2,000 years, the one thing that all Christians in Zimbabwe, uh, um, uh, Zambia, uh, Antarctica, if there's Christians out there, I mean, it doesn't matter where you go, the one thing that all Christians have believed, regardless of of denomination affiliation or whatever is that sex difference is part of what marriage is. It's fascinating. So what, I mean, we can't even agree on what books belong in the Bible, but up until 1960, every stream of Christianity uh, agreed on that really basic point. It wasn't really that debated. And so all all that to say, I mean, I, I don't know too many other doctrines that have had such unanimous agreement up until a few decades ago from so many different branches of Christianity. Add to that, The uh, what I would say is a fairly striking clarity within the biblical text itself. Whenever marriage is mentioned, its sex difference seems to be part of what marriage is, and whenever same sex sexual behavior is mentioned, it's always prohibited. We don't have again, even with. Can I just keep going? Is this? (laughs) Yeah, keep going. Even even within scripture, I mean, yes. The question is, divorce allowed? Well you know, Ezra commands divorce, Uh, Moses allows it in Deuteronomy, and and Jesus says no, but then sometimes he makes exceptions, and Paul adds to that. I mean, divorce, you know, there's some diversity within scripture. Even if I can say things like slavery, my goodness, I mean, you got some weird statements in the Old Testament allowing for slavery. Um, You could even, uh, let's take violence. We could even go there maybe later on. I mean, you got, you know, kill your enemies in some of the Psalms and love your enemies in the New Testament, and you have you have inner scriptural diversity regarding almost every single ethical question in Christianity, but you don't have any diversity when it comes to same-sex sexual relations, even though they were very widespread, well known, and diverse in the ancient world. And so, yeah, my, you know, I, I, I don't, um, I make no apologies by saying I do think uh, uh, Christianity and the Bible is very clear on this question for three quick reasons. Number one, sex difference is part of what marriage is number two, whatever same sex relations are mentioned, they're prohibited. And number three, the striking global Christian agreement on that question for 2000 years is unparalleled in Christianity, apart from maybe the deity of Christ and the Trinity, even those doctrines have been kind of, you know, framed differently depending on, uh, you know, different branches of Christianity. So that, that would be my uh, defense of, the, of my belief that it is, is
0: it, that the traditional Christian view is as clear as any other doctrine we know. So putting putting us back in the context of the ancient world, and of course that's, I mean, grouping it together is is probably not even an appropriate way to do it, but to, to go back into ancient times, both Judaism and Greco-Roman, uh, how did they think about this? I mean, yeah, did they even have a concept of gay or homosexual like we ha- like we have today i mean did they even think in those categories uh, well uh,
2: yeah two different questions there uh, number one no they didn't think in terms of gay or straight uh generally speaking um the, the uh, greco-roman world the roman world especially but let's just say greco-roman thought in terms of masculinity and femininity so you could be a masculine guy if you didn't if you had thick chest hair you know you didn't um you know, you, you didn't show PDA to any w- woman publicly. And if all you did is have sex with men and you were the dominant active partner, uh, you would be considered masculine, even if deep down you were exclusively gay. Again, they didn't have that category back then. So they, they did have the category of same sex sexual expression, same sex sexual preference. Now, they wouldn't say orientation in the same way we did, but they did have concepts of some people are just wired to want to have sex with people of the same sex like that general uh category was certainly available you can read in different medical texts and different philosophers and and, and plato um uh talks about it you know again the, you can't just map what they're saying directly on our modern day understanding of orientation but it's it's a, it's a parallel category when you go to the ancient world mesopotamia egyptian sexuality we just don't we don't have a whole lot to go on. So, when people state kind of categorically what the ancients believed about sexuality in the Old Testament time, it's it's we're, we're going on such, such little evidence. But the evidence we do have, again, we do see diversity. We do see evidence of even uh, same-sex adult consenting relationships way back in about 2500 BC in Egypt. Um, we see diverse views on same-sex sexuality in the ancient world. And so, my... With anything, there's just a diverse array of views on same-sex sexual expression. We can't simply assume, like some people do, a sort of uniform perspective, like it was all exploitative or there was no consenting relationships, and sort of read the Bible through that lens. We just don't have enough to go on, and what we do have is very, very diverse. Judaism, in particular, categorically, unanimously, forbid same-sex sexual expression I mean, as far back as we can see, we can go 500 years before Jesus, 500 years after Jesus, and every time same-sex sexual relations are mentioned within Judaism, they're always 100% prohibited. So there's no there's no diversity within Judaism, and and even some branches of moral philosophers in in the Greco-Roman period, the Stoics and so on, would have lined up with Judaism on that. There was sort of an internal debate within the Greco-Roman society. Mm-hmm. Whether or not same sex sexual expression is permissible or in certain circumstances or maybe it's totally fine. You know, there was
0: again, diversity within uh, greco-roman the greco-roman world regarding that, so we've already touched a little bit on on genesis and and in your book, I mean, you you make that argument pretty strongly that the the way marriage is ordained in, in the Garden of Eden, the, the gender difference is a, is a key component of that. You talked a little bit about Sodom earlier. That's kind of a go-to story uh, on this subject. Can you dive into the exegesis there? Really walk us through why that's a bad example to use on yeah. this topic.
2: Yeah, it's a really bad example. Um, and it's I, I would even add it, I think it's pastorally destructive. Again, well, the story of Sodom, you got uh, Lot has a couple— well, we know that we know that as a reader, we know they're angels, but he just thinks they're a couple of men and the people of the city think they're men. And it says that all the men of the city, young and old, the oldest to the youngest, okay, so the entire male population of Sodom, <laughs> you know, uh, comes to Lot's house, and bangs on the door and says, bring out the, your guests so that we may have sex with them. It is an attempt at gang rape. And again, you, you raise the question that they, you know, people in the ancient world have a category of gay or straight and, and not really. Um, and so we can't, it, it was f- somewhat common for, for, you know, people who weren't gay, uh, you know, men who were straight to rape other men out of a, a, a display of domination of power. You know, uh, sometimes on b- the battlefield, you'd have, uh, the conquering and, en- you know, the, the person who conquered the enemy to, to, you know, to rape some of their soldiers. And kind of like today we think of prison rape or something. And, um, uh, so the, the the story of Sodom is about that. It's not about a bunch of gay people trying to court, you know, lots, guests, bring them flowers and chocolates and take them out to, you know, some a moonlight stroll. I mean, there, there's no consensual attempt at sex here at all. I mean, it is a, a power rape, probably from people who weren't even gay. Um, so when your uh, 16-year-old child comes out to you and says, Mom, Dad, I, I think I'm I think I'm gay and he's been wrestling with this for several years. He's just been up late at night in tears and praying to God and, and really struggling. And he comes out to you as a parent and you say, well, son, you know, Genesis 19 says that homosexuality is wrong. And your son goes and reads that he's going to look up at you like saying, what do you think? I'm a friggin' monster. Like I'm, I'm not, I have no desire to, to sit here and overpower, like rape somebody. Like, what do you think I am? Th- that's what the, the pastorally destructive, Nature of applying that tax is you you just you can just further I mean compound the shame of somebody who's str- wrestling with their sexuality and is already maybe wrestling with you know uh, people calling them shameful things or, or making them feel like monsters and then you read Sodom and say that this is you like that is yeah it it's very destructive to apply this tax to modern day
0: you know same sex sexuality. You touched a little bit on the Levitical law earlier and and how even there the, the the principle is the action is called an abomination. The people are never called an abomination. But to fast forward us a little bit into the New Testament now, which, I mean, I, I think most of our listeners here would agree has hermeneutic priority. Sure. Uh, Romans 1 is another go-to passage that's often cited here. And it's, it's, it's a rather lengthy passage that this... This kind of features prominently. So, can can you talk to us about that? Your exegesis on that passage, and how does that apply uh, to to this subject?
2: Yeah, and and again, whenever we go to these prohibition passages, whether it's the story of well, not let's just leave out the story of Sodom, but like yeah, Leviticus, Romans, First Corinthians. Um, these are all, again, I just want to reaffirm that these are all secondary. The Bible, the primary question is what is marriage? And the Bible affirms that sex difference is part of what marriage is. So these prohibition passages are confirming the dominant view of 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 marriage as the proper context for sexual expression. So yeah, yeah, Romans 1, 26 to 27 is the it's the most important passage for several reasons. I, th- I you know it's it's the most thorough description of same-sex relations. I mean, some of these other passages, like 1 Corinthians 6-9, sort of depends on the meaning of one Greek word that's debated, and so that can get a little complicated. But here, Paul doesn't just use a word. He actually describes women having sex with women and men with men. Um, And, yeah, I mean, for most people, you read this passage, and again, for global Christianity, there's no no, no one really bats an eye. It it seems pretty straightforward, but some people want to say that – that when we read Paul's words here in light of the Greco-Roman background, then his words cannot apply to modern-day same-sex adult consenting relationships. Most people or most affirming writers want to say that, you know, Paul's talking about pederasty, older men having sex with teenage boys, prostitution, rape, or, or you know, sex at, you know, idolatrous shrines or whatever the cultic, cultic prostitution um the problem is is that there's no Paul uses very generic language here to refer to women having sex with women men with men he doesn't say masters raping slaves or older men having sex with teenage boys he doesn't really give a lot of he doesn't he doesn't narrow his language down to a specific type of same sex sexual relation he just talks in broad gender categories men with men women with mil- women and the language here is very mutual. It, it's uh, you know they they lusted for one another. Men committed shameless acts with other men, receiving in themselves in themselves uh, the due penalty for their error. Uh, so the language is is very much mutual. And for me, even uh, and I and I really wrestled with this. I, I tried to you know you mentioned earlier that uh, you know I've tried hard to almost agree with the affirming view, and and I do have this as you guys, I guess know, I'm in a track record of being a little bit of a theological loose canon. I, I tend to study topics and change my view while I'm studying them. You know, I studied violence and became a pacifist in the process and studied hell and became an annihilationist, you know, because I believe that's what the Bible teaches. So when I was studying these passages <laughs> and and expressing an eager willingness to to go with the affirming view, go go where the text leads, you know, I was making a lot of people nervous, so I just want to give that qualification that I, I've tried my hardest to to, to give a fair shake at all different perspectives on this passage. But the, the one main argument, too, that really, uh, I think, solidifies my belief that the traditional view is correct is Paul doesn't just mention male same-sex sexual expression here. He mentions female same-sex expression. And in the ancient world, even though it was common for male slave owners to rape their slaves or male um, older men to to have sex with teenage boys, when it came to women, and this is well documented in in the scholarly literature and secondary literature, uh, when it comes to women, they were, from what we know, it was very common for women's sexual relations, same-sex relations, to be between consenting adults. Uh, Clement of Alexandria even mentions, you know, women getting married in the second century in in Alexandria, Egypt. And and so, uh, even if you could read the male same-sex prohibition against all these sort of male exploitative relationships, that could work. I I think that has its own problems we can get to, but you you really can't read that. uh, You can't read the female same-sex relations through the lens of these sort of exploitative relationships that were almost exclusively between uh man in the ancient world when
1: you were on your journey uh with this you said you were open to the affirming view just you know i guess for the sake of fairness i suppose did you ever find yourself kind of temporarily in that camp for a little while and being like oh i can go with this for a while and then you're like, well no maybe not like how how was that journey for you was it back and forth or did you pretty well stay on this side of the line
2: that's a great question you know um let, let me, I'm, I'm trying to recollect after the fact. I, I was never in that camp um, because in my journey, I, I genuinely was wrestling with both options. And, and, I, and I didn't want to, I explicitly avoid the language of defending the traditional view. I was exploring the question and letting the arguments and evidence dictate my conclusion. So I never sought out to defend the traditional view. I sought out to explore the question. And so I never sort of landed until I landed
1: <laughs> That's terrible English, but um Well, I um, mean, did you make any of your friends nervous along the way, maybe?
2: <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, totally. So uh yeah, I mean I, I was sort of blogging out loud saying, Hey, here's this affirming argument. I'm really wrestling with this. Is this true? I'm gonna explore this over the next few weeks and people always, you know, conservatives would say, well, where are you at? You know, what's your stance? I said, I don't know. I'll let you know when I'm done with the exegesis, <laughs> you know, like I don't, I, I want to let the evidence dictate my conclusion, not, you know, vice versa. And so, yeah. Oh yeah. I made people nervous. And, you know, I would say the closest I came was that there was, there's a, a, several, I would say affirming scholars and writers who were hoping that I would be kind of this third way um, advocate, where I still hold a traditional view, but I, you know, I treat this issue as like a disputable matter, a secondary issue, like the timing of the timing of the rapture or something stupid, you know, that, you know, you can agree to disagree. And and um, I would say I toyed with that because I, I was never fully convinced of any affirming argument. I, I, I'm very happy to say there's some that are strong, stronger than others, but I was never, ever convinced by them along the way. I was just like, huh, I haven't thought about that. That's a, that's a, interesting argument, um, that, you know, is something that probably most conservatives haven't even thought about. So, um, in that journey, I was toying with, I mean, you know, may, do you think this is a secondary issue or whatever, but, um, when I backed up and really looked at marriage as a whole and, um, and sex difference within scripture as a whole and, and the, the profound uniformity on Christian perspectives on you know, this, this view of marriage as, as a union between two sexually different persons, I think that's where I was like, man, I just don't see this as a secondary issue. I mean, this is, these are kind of marriage and and sex difference are are basic, basic uh, institutions in human society and religion and and, um, how we understand human nature. Like these aren't some, you know, really narrow aspects of the human person. These are real basic, uh, uh basic aspects of human nature and so if the bible can't get that right then i don't, I don't know if i could trust the bible to you know tell me to love my enemies or all kinds of other things <laughs> like how did this uh,
1: experience uh, compare to your journey on the the topic of hell i mean just briefly was it a were, were people less nervous about this like were did you have friends more concerned that you might end up affirming than changing your view on eternal conscious torment because oh, that deals with the, not, the question not. of like priority and what's secondary, what's primary. And most people, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of Christians would put both of these
2: issues in, you know, some of the like the sure. big primary one. I would, that's a great question. And, and you know what? I, I would say with all three of the kind of big things that I've wrestled with violence, hell, and LGBT questions, um, you know, everybody has their kind of hobby horse. So I would say, depending on, you know, some of my most. I mean, volatile responses I've ever received in any theological discussion is is the the question of violence. I mean, you you dare you dare raise the question that maybe we shouldn't kill our enemies, who you know, in defense of our families or whatever. And man, I've seen people just, I mean, lose lose their <laughs> lose their su- sanity over that. I'm not I, surprised I by said,
1: that at all. Both Nick yeah. and I are probably not surprised by that at all. Uh, that's, that's pretty asked, much the big thing that we get to when we talk to
2: people about this. Oh my word. And you just raised the question. I mean, you just, you just ask the question, just say, Hey, maybe we should love our enemy. And then people just lose it. It's crazy. So, so, but um, I would say on the whole, yeah, probably the LGBT question because it's so politi- politicized because there's few Christians who haven't wrestled with it. You know, the hell conversation, there, there's some people, man, they, this is their issue. This is something they wake up early, wrestling with, go to bed late studying. Uh, but it's still, that is still kind of a small percentage of Christians. But yeah, I would agree. I, I think uh, I, I've been um, considered a heretic by saying that, uh, you know, annihilation is more biblical support. It doesn't really matter how many verses I cite. It's just, you know, assumptions <laughs> brought into that accusation. Um same thing with the violence, self-defense question. Um, but I would say the LGBT question is probably the most, the, the broadest um, conversation because almost every Christian is wrestling with this on some level.
1: Well, that raises the question, when you were blogging and doing your podcast about hell, you very early on, I think probably before you kind of announced yourself as an annihilationist, sort of opened up saying you think there should be room for that as a tradition, as a orthodox yeah. view. Do you do you think there's room for that uh, with the affirming view? Because, you know, if some people don't think it's this huge primary thing, then there can be room for it, just like yeah. there could be room for 16 different views of the timing of the rapture or whether there is right. a rapture and all that. Because, you know, and other people would say, well, nope, this is, this is a gospel related issue because it has to do with right. identifying sin. So I, what comments do you have on those questions?
2: You know what? Let, uh, let me acknowledge, first of all, that I have several affirming friends and in um, <clears throat> no way do I doubt their salvation. I, I don't even doubt their love for Jesus, the gospel. So, this is what makes it really messy. When, when you when you personalize these discussions, it's hard to give a black and white answer to any of this, but um, here's my, when people say, is this a gospel issue? Is this a salvation issue? Is this a matter of orthodoxy or non-orthodoxy or heresy? I just I'm still looking for a a solid um, methodology of determining what is orthodoxy and not. It gets really messy when you ask the question, "How do we know?" Some people want to say, "Well, it's clear clear in Scripture." Well, you know, I I gave a defense for why I think it's clear in Scripture, but it's kind of it is a subjective. (laughs) It is a subjective thing. I, I know many people who are pre-tribulational rapture people who think that that's as clear as like D.D.A. Christ. Like they would say that that's, you know, um, six day creation, whatever. I mean, they're pick your doctrine, your pet doctrine. You're going to have somebody that says it's this is clear, you know, um, or you can go back. You can, you can we can sort of punt and go back to the creeds, you know, Apostles Creed and I see a creed others. Um, the problem there is they don't have a statement on marriage. And so some people want to say, well, see, it's not in the creeds, so it's a secondary issue. But then we have to ask the question: Why wasn't it? Why wasn't it in the creeds? Well, it's because I think the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman was so self-evident that no, nobody, even the heretics, weren't debating this back then. <laughs> so we we can't just go on the fact that it wasn't in the creeds; therefore, it's not crucial. So I, I don't. I, I, it's an honest question. Like I, what I think we need to develop a, a a really well thought out, consistent methodology of determining. What is primary? What is secondary? What is up for grabs? What is is crucial to you know uh, the faith? I do think that my three points at the beginning of the podcast um, that the the whatever Bible talks about marriage, sex differences there it pro- always prohibits sex same sex relations and and the global historic multi denominational agreement on that. Man, I, I would say the the ball is in the affirming court to say that this is somehow a, a secondary issue that it's that it's within orthodoxy. Like I, I would, I guess, the ball is in their court to pr- prove to me um, and global Christianity how this is not uh, um, an ortho part of Orthodox Christianity. And, and that's a gen- that's a genuine question, not like an accusation. Like I actually would want to see. That argument, I'm yet to see a really sound argument that would show that it is part of an orthodox options.
1: Well, there's a little bit of an irony in that most of the people who are pushing an affirming view are left-leaning, and they are also very big advocates of... A global theological spectrum of you know engagement and conversation, and so I think that's that opens up the question of are they listening to them on this issue as well, or are we letting our Western uh, Western theology drive it? Which is funny because that's their critique of traditional theology,
2: right? It's modernist, and yeah, we need to get you know global perspective, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you said it, I didn't. I mean, that's I've thought that for a long time. I, I do a lot of overseas ministry in Nepal, and and I've tried to have my um, African friends or my, you know, Nepalese pastors even entertain this question. I'm trying to get them to, you know, they think we're out to lunch for even, that this is even in the church. I mean, for them, it's not even an issue, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it is, I think it is inconsistent, quite honestly, that, that you know, the same people that are pushing for a more, a less ethnocentric theology, a more global theology uh want to exclude the global voice from this conversation.
0: Preston, there's several passages in the New Testament that, you know, refer to a a, a list of sins, including homosexuals, fornicators, adulterers, et cetera, all, all these various things, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, so the question that is raised there is, is being attracted, same-sex attracted or tempted, but not acting on the temptation a sin in New Testament theology. And I think this is a really important distinction here because, I mean, there's there, there's a lot of Christians who who do struggle with this. They, they have that temptation, but they've chosen to not act on it or live celibate be, be out of obedience to Christ. Can, can you comment on that? Is being just simply same-sex attracted itself a, a sin? And what does the New Testament mean when it says that, Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God.
2: Yeah, good, great question. I want to acknowledge that there's uh, this is a debate within evangelicalism, and there's I would say there's good people on both sides. Uh, I take the view that I'm I'm going to use three terms synonymously here: uh, same-sex attraction, same-sex orientation, or simply being gay. Um, I, I you know I, th- I think all three of those ideas and concepts are overlapping at least if not synonymous i don't think that same-sex sexual attraction is a morally culpable sin you know sin is a broad category we talk about you know societal sins or sins because of the fall or just being born as sin nature um, so um, yes i do believe that same-sex attraction is is part of living in a fallen world it's "Quote unquote," not the way it's supposed to be, um, but uh, no, it's not a morally culpable sin. Uh, there's two, I think, significant passages for that. Roman, going back to Romans one, um, I think that that passage has been misunderstood to say that uh, that um, same sex attraction is a sin. There, I think Paul is talk. He does talk about sexual lust, uh, which is sort of wrapped up in the sexual act you know being consumed with passion for one another um to be blunt i mean i don't know anybody engaging in a sexual act who is not consumed with passion for one another Like, this just comes with the act so i don't think paul is critiquing what we now call same-sex orientation or same-sex attraction by saying that these people had passions for one another in the sexual act the important one for me is james one when when james distinguishes between um somebody who is being tempted by sin and somebody who is um, giving into sin. Like he makes a distinction between a desire that uh, gives birth to sin. In James one fifteen, he says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, he ha- he, I mean, the metaphor is a birth metaphor, right? Desire giving birth to sin. Well, if desire is giving birth to sin, that means by definition, desire isn't sin yet. Like, I mean, again, take the metaphor. If a mother is giving birth to a child, that means quite plainly quite plainly, that the mother isn't the child. So, I think even the Bible does uh, distinguish between temptation or uh, desires that, that are sort of simmering beneath the surface that could overflow into lust or sexual behavior, but in and of themselves, I don't think that they are sin. So, I don't, and, and, you know, I, I honestly, I'm I'm trying to understand the other view with people that say that same sex attraction is a sin. You know, my same my 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 celibate gay brothers and sisters. I mean, they're scratching their heads, thinking, "Well, what does repentance look like?" Because when I'm asleep at night, I'm still gay. Like I don't when when I'm reading a book, you know, in in, in my room, I'm still gay. Like how do I repent from that? Like I never stop being gay. I never stop having same sex attractions. Now sometimes, every now and then, that may. Uh, a temptation may hit for me to lust after somebody or engage in sexual behavior, but that's not, it's not like I'm just walking around slobbering, wanting to have sex with everybody. Like, I don't know any person, gay or straight, that lives like that. So, I, I think it is a, 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 I think it is a misunderstanding. When people say it is a sin. I think people misunderstand what they're even talking about when they say, when they're talking about same-sex attraction or same-sex orientation.
0: Like we, like like we talked about here, there's a lot of Christians who struggle with that that temptation but have chosen to not act on it out of faithfulness to christ the pushback i guess from the affirming camp would be that it's it's an unloving thing to expect these people to be celibate and but one of the things you talk about in your book that i I think is very important is that in modern western christianity we have really an unhealthy idolization of marriage as being like yeah. An, a, an apex of life. And that if you're right. not married, you're not, you're not really a fulfilled person. Uh, and, and singleness is kind of looked down on, but I mean, it seems to me in the New Testament, I mean, obviously Paul wasn't married, Christ himself wasn't married. Singleness has its own unique blessings. Co I mean, I, I, so I, I see this yeah. as I think you do as, as a corollary issue. Can you, can you comment on that a little bit?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, not just our culture, but our church culture, I think, has absolutely idolized marriage. We make we, we have a really terrible theology of singleness. Um, and then this is a really recent thing. I think the church, uh, throughout church history, I think that we have had a very healthy view of singleness, especially at the beginning, first few hundred years of Christianity. I think they, the first few Christians, I think, took you know Christ's singleness and Paul's words on singleness very seriously, and sort of elevated singleness like this is this is actually a uh, 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 a beautiful way and, and and great way to live, um, uh, but I think yeah I think more recently the church has viewed marriage as sort of yeah the ultimate goal in life. You're not really flourishing unless you're married and having lots of sex, and everything's kind of oriented towards how to get married. And if you're not married by the time you're 25, 30, 35, people look at you weird. And so I think that is the symptom of of this. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the, to say it's unloving, you know, I've heard people many people, the the pushback I always get is it's unloving to sort of force people to be celibate. And I said, why (laughs) that's just sort of, I mean, control by framing it that way, it controls the the discussion. The question is, what is God's um, will for sexual expression? Like we need to begin there. Um, And so what, what is loving, loving being loving according to Christian love is helping others to live their life in line with God's will uh, when it comes to sexual expression. So, Um, I'm not forcing anybody to do anything I'm helping others well first of all I'm calling my own sin on the carpet hopefully over and over and over I'm hopefully I'm hating my own sin before I hate the sin of others um but I'm also um helping others out of love to pursue holiness to join arms and pursue this imperfect journey towards holiness which includes God's design for sexual expression um People can live without sex, but they can't live without love and intimacy, and I think that, you know, a lot of modern people scratch their head thinking, well, what's the difference? And that's the problem. If you have to ask the question, what's the difference? And I think that's a huge problem. People can live without sex, but they can't live without love and intimacy, and until we understand that important distinction, I think the church will
0: not be the family that our celibate gay brothers and sisters need. Preston, your new ministry is the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, which is really dedicated to helping the church uh, think through this, think through our theology, and really have much better practical application in the way we we minister to to believers in the church and to those outside the church who were evangelizing. So my question is, how—and this is very broad—how but (laughs) does the church move forward— on this matter, in a way that is both faithful to to Christ and to His commands, and still loving to to, to real people with real struggles.
2: Ah, man, that's the million dollar question. Um, you can begin by going to centerforfaith.com. dot <laughs> com. I mean, that, the the whole goal of this organization is to pr- provide resources, equipping education, training on many different levels to help people, uh, wrestle with and answer the very question you ask, how can I be faithful to, uh, scripture? Um, and how can I extend radical love towards all of God's beautiful creatures, including those who struggle with their sexuality or gender identity? Um, my, you know, my, uh, gosh, um, on the on the sort of compassion side if we can divide it in terms of like truth and and compassion um, on the compassion side I would say man just get to know uh, as many LGBT people as you can that, that that has been the most rewarding fruitful things I have done in my Christian journey is befriend many dozens of LGBTQ people and just get to know them love them hear from them be challenged by them and when you do that doesn't mean you they agree with everything I say, or I agree with everything they say, and, and you may find some, uh, you know, striking agreement actually when you get to know people, but you just it, it it prevents you from depersonalizing questions that are profoundly personal to many people. So get to know as many LGBT people, ask questions, listen, 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 learn, educate yourself on the truth side. Here, here's here's where a lot of people go they they do the compassion they do everything i just said and then they say oh so now i need to sort of revamp my theology i need to change what god said about marriage or same-sex expression and 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 no <laughs> again going back to that massive survey that was done that the theology is not what's driving people in the church not 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 totally um it, it has been our posture it has been our lack of relational care and, and so on and so forth so um I think when, when you come to studying what the Bible says, what Christianity teaches about marriage and same-sex relations, gosh, um, you know, I guess my encouragement is, is try to understand what the Bible's saying as fairly and unbiasedly as you can. I say that both to those on my right and those on my left, conservatives, liberals, whatever, because conservatives have... I mean, just as much of a problem of reading into the text what they want to see as, as progressives do. I think it's a it's a massive problem just in human nature. So, we need to not open the Bible hoping to find the answer we want or, you know, pushing the Bible to agree with where we want to go, but letting the Bible both confirm and critique uh, what we think it, it should say. So, um, yeah, that'd be the beginning, I guess. Since the book has been
1: published, have you had interactions with some of the affirming authors, you know, the people that anybody listening here would read, not just, you know, friends that you have?
2: I have interacted with almost all of the major affirming writers um, and scholars. I've sat in the office of James Brownson, who I think wrote the most compelling academic affirming biblical argument called Bible Sexuality Gender. Uh, He's a wonderful, brilliant new testament scholar a wonderful man um i have read his book several times in fact i uh it it was such a compelling book that i said if i can't um if i don't know how to refute this then then maybe i need to agree with it you know like i want to understand what he's saying but then after really reading through i'm like man i just saw so many i did see a lot of holes in his argument so i wrote a, a long critique of the book um i have conversed with Ah, uh, Matthew Vines is like a popular level writer who's sort of he's done a he's done a really helpful job of like making the affirming arguments accessible. Like, if you want to understand what the affirming arguments are, I think his book "God and the Gay Christian" is a is a great start. Man, I've read that several times. I've blogged through it. I've talked with him on Skype for a few different times. Um, I have talked with Justin Lee on the phone. I've I've learned so much from Justin. In fact, it's because of Justin that I I've really understood. Um, and this is a long phone conversation. I'll, I'll never forget on the layover in, in Minneapolis Airport. I was actually just wondering if he would forward my book. And he says, I can't forward your book. <laughs> but but he he um he he helped me understand why the phrase same-sex attraction has just as much baggage as the term gay. Because a lot of people get up in arms over the term gay Christian. he says, Well, you know what? Same-sex attraction has just as much baggage as the term gay for those of us who where sort of have gone through reparative therapy and all these things. And um, yeah, so I, and on and on and on, I, mean, I tried to, uh, oh, Megan DeFranza is another one who has become a friend of mine, who's an affirming theologian and gosh, she is just incredibly brilliant and I've learned a lot from her. And again, I say all of the, all of this in the context of I very much disagree significantly with all these people and their conclusions, but I I can, before God and before your audience, I can say I have done my best to, Uh, get to know and
0: learn from the best affirming writers that I know. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, for that fascinating interview. We will be sure to link to the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender in the show notes, as well as other resources where you can find Preston's work, and hopefully we'll be able to have him back on a future episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. If you'd like to support our organization, you may do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.